Well, let's open our Bibles, please, at Luke's Gospel and chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel and chapter 9. We'll be moving into chapter 10 as well. Where are we at? What we're here doing is we are looking at the last six months in the life of the Lord Jesus and in his ministry, the last six months. The cross is clearly in view. He's moving towards that time when he will make that one sacrifice for sin forever. He's going to the place called Calvary, where there, as we pondered this morning, he is going to shed his precious blood. And on that cross and through that sacrifice, sin will be dealt with and Satan's power and rule will be completely and totally broken. I've not lost sight of the fact that what we're looking at is God's program for the destruction of Satan and the breaking of his power and the undoing of his works. There'll be a finality to this in a day to come when Satan himself, the devil himself, will be cast into the lake of fire. But meanwhile, we are looking and seeing the program of God and the work of Christ as in these last six months, the shadow of the cross is looming high and long across his pathway, and he's moving onward to the place of sacrifice. You see, Christ and the cross are foundational truths in the Christian faith. The two must go together, Christ and the cross. One is well written, a Christless cross, no refuges for me. A crossless Christ, My saviour cannot be, but, O Christ crucified, I rest in thee. That's where we rest this morning. We preach Christ and him crucified to the Greeks. It's an offence, you see. It's such a simple message. And indeed, it's not intellectual enough or academic enough. And to the Jew, it's a stumbling block. But to us that are saved, the scripture says it's the power of God. We rejoiced in that this morning, didn't we? We've seen how the Lord Jesus is preparing them for what lies ahead and the pathway for the next six months as they follow him. And he tells them certain things they must get clear in their minds. Verse 20 of chapter 9. Whom say ye that I am? In other words, we must know who the Lord Jesus really is. Who it was that suffered and bled and died. We must know who Jesus is. Verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected of the elders. He must, and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be slain. And he must rise again the third day. We must understand the program of redemption and the necessary suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be slain. But he must rise again. Then in verse 23, the next thing he wants them to grasp and understand are the terms of true discipleship. What it means to really follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him at this point where the cross is in view. And ever since we've been following the man that died upon the cross. And this is what he says. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and Follow me. Now the pathway of true discipleship is what? It can be spelled out in terms of self-denial. 
sacrifice, suffering, and following. That's what the Lord is teaching them. Then he took us, he took those disciples, and the writer Luke takes us up on that high and holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. And I would encourage you, we spent a little time last week, and I won't dwell there this week, but I would encourage you to do what we started to do in your own quiet times. Go and read the story and the events of the Mount of Transfiguration. Spend a little time in your prayer, in your reading, and your meditation, and stand there on the Holy Mount with those disciples, and you'll discover that what Peter said, half of it was true. Lord, it's good for us to be here. It's good for us to be here. Because you see, once you've stood there and meditated on it, and you've, as it were, the Holy Spirit has shown you the meaning of those words, you'll understand there can be no thought of failure or defeat in the program of God. None at all. Satan is a defeated foe and he will never conquer. You're getting a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom that's yet to come. That's how it started in verse 27. There were some standing there which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And Mark says, the kingdom of God come in power. And I tell you, after you've stood on that mountain and see that transfiguration, you will truly know who this Jesus really is. Once, once you see the light shining out from him, remember, his face shone as the sun. His garments were glistening, glistering, white as the light. It wasn't that he stood on the mountain as an actor standing on a stage and the spotlight came down on him. It was actually the light that went out from him, you see. There was something so different that changed in his appearance as he glowed with the glory of who he was. There was a metamorphosis. There was a tremendous change. They had been looking at him as he had lived for three and a half, three, and a year, three years with them, and the 30 years before, and they'd seen him as the humbled man, being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. They'd seen him in that, as it were, outward appearance, being found in the outward of appearance of a man, humbled man. And suddenly here it seems that the light of the glorious man shines right, shines right through. And the change is so dramatic. For here he is not as a humbled man in obedience, but as a man made in the perfect image and likeness of God. He is the effulgence of his glory. He's the express image of his person. And he can there in glory talk to Moses and Elias. And he's still a man in all his glory and in all his splendor. And they are just absolutely transfixed by what they see. Once you see that glory, that transformation, that metamorphosis, and when you stand there in awe and you see the cloud coming and you hear the voice from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. I tell you what, you will truly know who Jesus truly is. He's more than a carpenter. He's more than just another one like us. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is God over all, blessed forever. And God has made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now those are the lessons of the mountain. In the days past he spoke unto us by the prophets. There's Elias. 
And there's Moses who said, A prophet shall the Lord raise up like unto me. Him shall ye hear. And now he's speaking unto us in his Son. You grasp these things. You stand in worship on those, that holy mountain. You get on your knees and open your Bible and ask the Lord to reveal the blessed truths within it and to fill your eyes with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you, you'll have no trouble following him. The terms of discipleship will be no trouble to you. The, the sacrifice that is involved, the, the pathway of suffering and self-denial, it will be no trouble. And you will have no trouble being a partaker of his sufferings. Now this is very relevant for us in our discipleship pathway today. Now go to verse 51. <clears throat> As we move on, the Lord, they came down from the mountain, remember. And in verse 44, I'll say in chapter 9, the Lord said, Let this saying sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. So he's repeating this must again. They understood not this saying. It was hid from them. They perceived it not. They feared to ask him. This whole mystery of suffering... And a pathway of suffering. And now what does he do? <clears throat> In verse 51, and it came to pass. I want you to notice the reading. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. Right? He set his face, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, now get that picture. Just get a picture of the Lord Jesus. You've seen him on the mountain, all right, in glory. Now he's come down in service. The face of the Lord Jesus in glory is shining like the sun. Now the face of the Lord Jesus in service is set steadfastly. You get the idea? The, the set of that face. Now Luke, Luke writes word pictures, doesn't he? He's a beautiful artist with words. Capture the sense of the face of the Lord Jesus, set steadfastly. You know, there's a setness about the jaw and a firmness about the mouth and a very direct gaze in the vision in a certain direction. What we're looking at is a fixity of intention. Set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. There's resolute determination and there's an unwavering commitment to the pathway of the next six months. What we're looking at is a picture of Jehovah's perfect servant. There is a work that must be done. He must deal with sin in order to break Satan's power and to set the captives free. Thank God he set his face to do that work or you and I would never be singing. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. See, Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied all this happening so beautifully in his servant song. Now, I want you to turn to Isaiah 50 to get the picture because it's really lovely. Isaiah chapter 50. And you'll see there, <clears throat> there are three sections of the prophecy, four sections in the prophecy, where he makes prophecies, he bursts into song, really, about God's servant. Now, sometimes he's referring to Israel... But Israel, as God's servant, as they were meant to be, in all fairness, they did fail. And there was one who would come who would never, never fail. Four servant songs in Isaiah. All right? And the first one is chapter 42, verse 1 to 4. All right? If you want to write that down, write it down because you'll learn something. Verse 1 to 4. And it starts beautifully. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, 
in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Verses 1 to 4, right? First servant song. The next one is a cross in, ver- in chapter 49, and it's verses 1 to 7. In that section, he talks particularly about Israel as the servant, more so, and yet you see Israel fail. Third servant song, chapter 50, which we're at, verses 4 to 11. And of course the fourth one, and this is really good, it's really good. The fourth one encompasses the whole of chapter 53, doesn't it? eh? That's beautiful, isn't it? What is it all about? It's about his death. It's about his sacrifice for sin. It's about the fact that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the fourth one is verse 13 of chapter 52, which starts off, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and he shall be exalted and extolled and made very high, as many as were astonished at thee and his visage. There it is again. The face was so marred more than any man. That fourth song is about his suffering, the suffering servant. All right? Now, we're in the third song. We're just before the suffering servant, Calvary, which is Isaiah 53. We're six months away from the cross. And Luke picks up the picture and he says he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Now you come down chapter 50 and you look at verse 7. The Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be be confounded or put to shame. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Now that's what you've got in Luke here, chapter 9. He set his face steadfastly. Another translation actually translates this. He set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. You see that? He is determined. that You can't change flint. It's stone, you see. You can't change that face. He is now intent on the work of God and the the work of redemption and the shedding of his blood and the sacrifice for sin and the blessing for sinners and the captives being set free. Nothing's going to move him now. For three years, he has been preaching and teaching and he's been blessing and he's been moving everywhere, but not now. There's one road ahead and it's the road to the cross and it's the sacrifice for sins forever and it's the shedding of precious blood and it's the bringing in of the whole purpose of the plan of redemption and the purposes of God and the breaking of the Satan's power. Because once sin is dealt with, Satan has no grip on man because death has been dealt with, because the penalty has been removed and life, life, glorious life has been established through the fact that he has been slain but he will rise again from the dead. So you see why I've gone to the servant song. Now, let me just briefly give it to you because it's so lovely I can't really leave it. Verse 4, is verse 4 to 11. What does he say there? Says that the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. That's what his ministry's been for the last three years. As he, what does he say? He says, Come unto me, or ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's speaking a word to those that are weary. What is he saying to his disciples later? Be of good comfort, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And he gives these words so that those that are weary are lifted up. And it says he wakens morning by morning. He wakens mine ear to hear is the learned. In other words, he says, I am a servant who opens my ear to the voice of God to receive instructions every day. 
And in verse 5, And the Lord God opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned I away back. Jehovah's perfect servant, listening every morning, speaking words of comfort to the weary, is now the one who is obeying the voice that he hears, and he's not rebellious, nor does he turn back. Verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters, they're my cheeks, there's the face again, to them that plucked off the hair, and I hid not my face from shame and spitting. The true servant who listens, the true servant who obeys, is now the servant who is going to suffer. And as the Lord Jesus said as he went out to his arrest, Arise, let us go. be going hence, as the Father has given me commandment, even so I do. Absolute submission and no rebellion, and the Saviour becomes the suffering Saviour, and the servant of Jehovah, the suffering servant. Verse 7, the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. That's the idea. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, right? I know I shall not be ashamed. He knows what lies ahead is certain victory. He that is near, he justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that condemns me? You see, he's going along a pathway where he's certain of victory. It's a pathway of apparent defeat, but it's not. He is in the fellowship with God, in the work of God, as the servant of God. He has the power of God, of the kingdom of God. He is the very king himself in total control. Victory is certain. Apparent defeat it might seem, but no, it's not going to be so. For he would be slain. He must rise again. Great victory or sin and death and hell. Verse 8 to 11 tells us all about those who oppose him. And his adversaries will end up like a moth-eaten garment burnt in a fire and they lie down in torment. Now you take those verses home for yourself because it's absolutely beautiful to read and to understand something more of those just those little words said in verse 51. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 57 to 62 comes up the same thing, right? He's made it clear to them he must suffer. You can see that. Now, the discipleship issue comes up again and he makes it clear to them there's a price to be paid. It's a difficult pathway if you're going to follow the Saviour who went to the cross. We've got to have fellowship in his sufferings and we've got to do that because we'll have, never have fellowship in his resurrection if we don't do that. So that's verses 57 to 62, but I've spoken on discipleship. We'll leave that and we'll go to chapter 10. This is quite amazing. This is quite amazing. I'll read it and then uh, <clears throat> comment. But I'll read it because I want you to get... Look, live in the picture, please. Capture the atmosphere of the day. All right? After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also. It's not 12 now. This is a much bigger thing. He sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. This is what he said as he started out on the great program, the great mission. 
He said to them, The harvest truly is great. The laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. Right, that's the first thing. Pray. Second thing, go. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs amongst wolves. Carry neither purse, nor script, or bag for food, nor shoes, or a change of clothes. Salute no man by the way. I thought, well, that's pretty rude. Actually, it's not. Um, in the East, you see, when you had salutations and greetings, it was a great long, long, long drawn-out affair, you know? You, you, you wish peace on the person, and peace on the house, and peace on the servants, and peace on the cattle, and peace on everything, and then they return all their blessings and pieces back to you. And you say, look, no, don't get occupied merely in the socialising. There's a, there's a work to be done, you see? That's the point here. It's not a question of uh, cultural rudeness at all. He says, and when you enter into a house, first say, this is short and sweet, as it were, Peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. And if not, it shall return to you again. And the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labourer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. You know, stick with the programme. Stick with your work. Focus on it. Right? And into whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say to them, say to them, this is your message, all right? The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of your city which cleaves on us, we wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this. All right? Just because you've rejected us and sent us on our way and you don't want it, nothing changes. The message is the same. The truth is the same. The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I do say that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for the mighty works have been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you. They would have a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you, heareth me. He that despises you, despises me. He that despises me, despises him that sent me. Right, just stop there a minute. Seventy, right? Seventy being sent out. Now, again, get the, the sense of the atmosphere of the moment. I mean, things are not good. Number one, time is running out. Six months to go. Number two, the attitude towards the Lord Jesus, as we have seen, has distinctly changed. It's getting quite hostile, isn't it? The hostility is rising, and faith is under strain. You know, the disciples are really struggling with this notion of the suffering and the death of the cross. They really are. I mean, Peter was quite worked up, wasn't he, when he said, not, not so, Lord, you're not going that way. So you've got time running out, you've got the attitude that's increasingly hostile, and you've got faith being, as it were, stretched. So you say now we're planning an evangelistic campaign here. Uh, what's the best strategy under such conditions? Well, you know, um, probably should keep a low profile, you know? Should keep a bit of a low profile. It's not an opportune time. But oh no, 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 no. It's not like that. The Lord of the harvest doesn't see anything like that. At such a time, what does he say? He says, look, the harvest, he says. The harvest is truly great. He sees fruit that is ripe and ready to be gathered in, even in such a time, even in such a day of hostility, right? Of faith under strain, of time running out. 
He sees what can be done and what there is for God. And fellow Christian, God is able to work in the darkest of the days. Please do not lose heart. God is able to work in our day. God is at work in our day. God does work in our day. The harvest is ever truly great. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, to send forth labourers into the harvest field. I confess for the last 18 months that prayer has been on my lips over and over as we see the darkness that's gradually coming over our land, as we're seeing the hostility that is rising and growing in its foment and in its ferment. Lord, raise up men who will speak the word of God. Raise up the gospel message to be heard. Sinners can be saved by grace. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You get it. You get it. Keep going. The harvest, says the Lord, is truly great. Now, to appreciate that point a little more, and I want you to because I've meditated on this and it's been wonderful to me. Understand not only the atmosphere of the day, but get your geography in your mind right. I've been a bit puzzled lately. I'm trying to follow the journeys of the Lord Jesus and that because it's so blessing. There's such a blessing in it. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, we all got told about the journeyings of the Apostle Paul. Um, you would remember that. And they, uh, Bible class after Bible class were on the journeyings of the Apostle Paul. I never heard one do the journeyings on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I haven't quite worked out why. All right? And even when we did the journeyings of the Apostle Paul, it was all about geography. It never seemed to be about the significance of the message that they preached in the particular city or town that they went to. However, we'll leave that. Let's get this clear a moment. <clears throat> that area in the time of the Lord Jesus. Here you've got, as it were, the great salt sea. All right. Up here you've got the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And you've got the Jordan River running in between. All right. So down here is the salt sea. Jerusalem is on the western side of the river, just at the bottom here. And the land around is Judea. This is on the western side of the River Jordan. Above that, you've got Samaria. Right? Then above that, by the Sea of Galilee, you've got Galilee itself, just in general terms of the time of the Lord Jesus. That's on the western side. Jerusalem, centre of Judea, Samaritans, Samaria, and then Galilee, the Galileans. Over the other side here, you've got an area called Decapolis, but a huge area down here, and it's <coughs> called Perea. Right? Now, the Lord Jesus spent the last six months of his time, most of it, in that part called Perea. Now, go back again. Jerusalem and Judea down here, down the bottom, <coughs> by the Salt Sea on the western side of Jordan. Right? Now, this was the place of influence. This, this was where all the city slickers dwelt, you know? This was a place of power. This was a place of academic learning. This was a place of politics. This was a place of proper religion. You know, they were knew how to live. The intellectuals were all there, and all the church was all there, and all the power places were all there, the city slickers, right? Then you go up above it, you've got the Samaritans living in Samaria. Well, they're just plain hostile. Very different. <laughs> they had no dealings. The Jews and the Samaritans had no dealings, did they? I mean, it was just not on thing. They had a different religion up there in Samaria. They were, well, slightly mongrel in their beliefs. They had a different Messiah, and they had a, they claimed all sorts of things that were false. Whoa, nothing to do with them. And the others said, no, we're having nothing to do with you. Actually, a, a, a real Jew, a, a devout Jew, if he had to, if he had to go through some land of the Samaritans, 
when he got back, if he crossed the borderline, he would take his shoe off and he would shake the dirt on the Samaritan side, you know? That belongs to them, put the shoe back on and off he'd go. Then, no friendship between them, all right? Then above Samaria, you get to Galilee. Now, this is a bit different. These are country folks up here, really. I mean, class below, they're not, they're not as in the place of power and learning and politics down there in Jerusalem. They're a little bit, they're really quite despised, actually. I call them the country bumpkins. You understand what I mean? You know, we live in a city, don't we? Like, like if you live in Sydney and Melbourne, you look down on Brisbane. If you live in Brisbane, you look down on the local yokels that are out there in the bush. You know, they live in the bush. But they haven't got our sort of taste and culture and civilization almost. Now, that's the attitude towards Galilee. Remember, Nazareth was in Galilee. And they said, can any good thing ever come out of Nazareth? I mean to say, you're going to tell us that the Messiah's come out of Nazareth. Yes, he humbled himself, didn't he? And then in Perea, this big area where the Lord spent the six months, that is the area that was very much neglected, both financially, religiously, and culturally. Indeed, Jerusalem wasn't much interested in them. Pretty much neglected. So what does the Lord do? He goes there. You see, he's already been in Galilee for a long time, hasn't he? Where there were people that were despised. And now he goes there to Perea, where he sees people that are neglected. And he sees fields that are already white unto harvest. Do you realise that the Lord Jesus spoke of the fields being white to harvest three times? He lifted up his eyes and he said, can't you see the fields? They're ready for harvest. The first time was in Samaria, in, where the Samaritans are, where there was hostility. You remember the woman by the well? <clears throat> she sat there by the well and the Lord Jesus went that way. He sat there by the well, weary. He spoke to a woman of Samaria, I mean to say, and she was a dreadful sinner, and she really was. And what came out of that little conversation? The men of the city are coming and saying, "Come." she said to them, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? The gospel's getting preached to Samaritans who are looking for a different Messiah in a different place, and they worship in a different way. But that one conversation... The men of the city come out, and what do they say? Well, he say, say, we have seen and we believe for ourselves, not because of what you said. We've seen him ourselves. The disciples come back, and they look, and they think, wow, he's actually talking to a Samaritan. That's sort of not the done. What a waste of time. And a woman like this, and he says to them, you know, you say that there's four months yet to go for the harvest, don't you? You say it's not time to be preaching like this. He says, lift up your eyes, the fields are already white under harvest. And he looked upon those Samaritans, and he saw there was a great reaping for God in Samaria. That's the first time. The second time he said it was in Matthew chapter 9. And when you get this all together, you'll see the beauty of what the Lord is doing here in Luke. And in Matthew chapter 9 and verses 36 to 38... Verses 35, he's going about the cities. Verses 36, he saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion on them because they were fainting, they were weary, they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Weary, scattered, no guide, no shepherd to lead. And what does he say? Ah, the harvest is truly plenteous. But the labourers, they are few. This is, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth labourers into his harvest. That is actually in Galilee. You see that? Samaria, the fields were white to harvest, despite the hostility. Galilee, you know, the, 
the, the despised, the sort of place where you wouldn't get much to add to the upper echelons of society and religion. Aha, he saw the fields white under harvest. That's what he saw. And now we're moving into Perea, the neglected area. And he says exactly the same thing. Can I say it again? Would you please understand? Please understand and take heart. The door of opportunity is not shut in our day just because, pardon me, foolish politicians think they can shake their fist in the face of God. The kingdom of God comes in power through the preaching of the cross, which is the power of God unto salvation to every man that believes. That's the truth of it. Paul says, a great door is open unto me. But he says, the adversaries, they are many, but it doesn't matter. There's hostility, yes. Indifference, yes. False religion, yes. Faith under pressure, yes. But God is still on the throne. Go and preach the kingdom of God. What does he say in Timothy? You be instant in season and out of season. In other words, it's not the point isn't whether the time's favourable or not. Just go out there with that message that I gave you. And there's only one message, he says, tell them about the kingdom of God. After all, when the Lord Jesus began to preach, he preached the kingdom of God has come nigh. He's amongst you, he's nigh to you. John the Baptist preached exactly the same thing, right? The 70 are sent out with the message of the kingdom of God, exactly the same thing. So are we. Except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. He shan't enter the kingdom of God. There is a reign and a rule that is coming from a Christ who is king of kings and lord of lords and the kingdom of God shall come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven and every soul will come under that king. Either the blessing of his reign because they've been washed in the blood of the lamb and they know the king that suffered bled and died or they shook their fist in his face and rejected his invitation and his offer and they'll come under judgment. Now that's what you got here in what we read. All right? Nothing has changed. Look at verse 1. Um, let me find it again. Luke chapter 10. <coughs> Luke, um, yeah, chapter 10, verse 1. It says there that he sent them. All right? Now look at chapter, look at verse 2. Pray ye. He told them, to pray. They were sent and they were to pray and in verse 3 they were to go. Alright? Sent, pray, go. Now notice it, what he says here. He says, I send you forth. Verse 3. I want you to notice that. We are in the world as those who have been sent into the world. Now, we are in the world, in our world, not by chance, is by the deliberate plan and prayer of the Lord Jesus. When he left the world, he didn't say, please, can I bring these disciples with me? He says, I'm, not, I'm leaving the world, but they are left in the world. His prayer was that they would be kept from evil. Thank God for that prayer. But he then turned to the disciples and he says, you know, as the Father sent me into the world, even so send I you into the world. In the face of hostility, yes, where your faith is going to be pressed and, and, you know, under great tension. But I've sent you with the word of the kingdom of God. Now, when the Lord Jesus says, as the Father has sent me into the world, the word he uses for sent there is the word that 
<coughs> means one who has authority. It's apostello, if you want to know, but he is sent with all the authority of God by God into the world. So in these last days, he's speaking unto us in Son. When it says that we are being sent, and he, here he's sending them into the world, right? And in John, the same thing. Well, the word there is slightly different. We're sent under authority, not with that divine authority, but we have in our hands the ability to preach the word which has God's authority, but we ourselves are servants under his authority. In other words, we are doing his service and his work. May I say we are running his errands, if you like, and he sends us with that message. We are under authority. We must serve him as a true servant. He sends us, we go. And what do we do? We preach the kingdom of God. Verse 3, you're going to be as lambs amongst wolves. You say, oh, yes, it was a hard time at that day in Jerusalem for these disciples. We live in a much better day. No, we don't, and we'll find out that we don't. Please, there's going, there is that persecution. All right, There is that tremendous hostility. And he says, don't carry purse. Don't take some money. Don't take a bag for your food. Don't even take a change of shoes. Right? What's he saying here? You've got to go and don't spend your time in all those long salutations and greetings and socializing. Why? What we got here is it's a pathway of discipleship and service in which there is complete dependence on the one who sent you. We've been sent into the world, you know. He'll look after us right through to the end. You understand that? He's prayed for us already that we might be kept from the evil. And remember when he was here, what did he say? Of those you gave me out of the world, I never lost one of them. And if you're a child of God, you're not going to be amongst the lost. Never lost one of them. Now that's how he's giving them, the, as it were, building them up to move on. He says there in verse 5, Whatsoever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. Now that's all, that's all you're told to say. No, 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 wait a minute. We must <coughs> build up a relationship here. <coughs> we must sort of study the background and the culture. <coughs> we must get the approach right. No, 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 he says. Peace, that's what you say to them. Same message, all the time. Same <laughs> congregation or audience. Say the same thing. Don't change it, right? Verse 6, the door opens. Well, you go through it. Now, that's important in your witnessing. We spend ages sometimes working out how we can witness. Would you just sit quiet sometimes and wait for the door to open, all right? You'll be amazed at looking back. A door just opened. <laughs> just, I didn't open the door. It opened for me. There's a big difference, you see. Because, after all, I'm not doing the work. I'm just a servant. The Holy Spirit is God's authority here on earth doing the work. And he'll soften our heart. He'll create an inquiry or a question. Or he'll give you the opportunity. You just go through the door. That's what he's saying to them. Door opens, you go through it. Right? And not more, you stay there and you continue to do your work. The same house going up from house to house. Right? And there it is. And when you get there... <coughs> The same in the city, what you do is you heal the sick, but here's the message. The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Now, verse 10 to 11, into whatsoever city ye enter and they receive you not, well, what you better do is go back and change your message and your approach. No, 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 never change the message. Never, please. When you're sowing, like the sower in the parable of the sower, remember, the ground gave all sorts of different responses, but the seed was the good word of God. And the sower never changed the seed. 
You don't do that. You just give the word of God. That's the power of God unto salvation. That's the instrument the Holy Spirit of God uses to further his work, which he is doing in the hearts of men to convict them of sin and righteousness and of judgment to come and to bring them to Christ with a a sense of need and to open their eyes to see the glory of the Saviour, to point them to Christ, the sinner's only only Saviour, the only one who can wash you in his own precious blood. That's how it works. That's the teaching of Scripture. Verse 10 to 11, if they don't receive you, what happens? You call down judgment. But before you call down judgment, as you call down judgment, you you make this clear in verse 11. You say to them, you be sure of this, notwithstanding, despite what you've done, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. We're in those days. We'll be scoffed at, we'll be laughed at, we'll be mocked for such a stupid story as God actually judging mankind. As the Jesus of Nazareth, the man of the cross who is dead and buried, rising again and returning in great power and glory to hold men accountable for their sin. Ha, 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 you Christians have been waffling on about that. Where is the promise of his coming? You've been doing it for years. They may mock you. Yes, and they may try to ridicule you. Say the same thing. Because it's absolutely true. That's the message that we're getting here from the sending out of the saints of the 70. Don't modify your message. Don't apologize for it. Restate it and warn of judgment. We're getting to forget in the church that there's a message of salvation, of love and forgiveness. The only alternative to that is judgment. You know, there's only one alternative to heaven, pardon me, that's hell. And there's only one alternative to the love of God, and that's the wrath of God. All right? It's very black and white. The more you preach black and white, the more people want you to preach grey. It's amazing, that. But however, there it is. And he turns in verses 13 to 15, and he speaks of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. These are all around the Sea of Galilee where he's leaving, you see. He's leaving to go down here to Perea. All right? And he says to them, you know, judgment is all I can leave with you. And then he turns in verse 15 there and 16, he says, He that hears you, hears me. He that despises you, despises me. He that despises me, despises him that sent me. Let that sink in. You are speaking on his behalf. He that hears you, you have been used by the hand of God to be the voice of God, to point a soul to Christ, whether it's by your life or by your lip, by your behaviour and practice and or by your words. But when they reject it, they're actually rejecting him. When they're despising you, they're actually despising me. That's why you must never be worried if you suffer as a Christian. Never be worried about that. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You actually should glorify God because of it. Why is it that we all want to avoid persecution instead of glorifying God because of it? They're six months from the cross. The atmosphere is changing. The reality of following the Lord Jesus are coming before them. We saw many would go back and not walk no more with him. We're moving into days when there will be a price obviously to be paid. And we've said it before, discipleship costs you everything. Salvation costs you nothing. Discipleship costs you everything. Right? We're going into those days, fellow Christian. And understand that if you do suffer for your faith or for what you are, Right? Praise God for it, for the spirit of glory and of God 
it rests upon you. They reject you, they reject me. They despise you, they despise me. And I want to say, nothing has changed. It's exactly the same today. So just follow the path of the Master. We're following a suffering Saviour. We're following a rejected Christ. We're following a crucified Christ. That's where we're following. We're following one who Satan said, I don't want him in my kingdom. Ah, but he's come and he's invaded his kingdom. And he's set captives free by the work of the cross. And by the power of his resurrection, he's overthrown sin and death and hell. And in that coming day, he'll gather the whole filthy lot together, as it were, casting it into the lake of fire. It burned, a lake that burns with fire unquenchable. Just close. It's verse 17. The 70 return. And they're so happy, it's even better than they thought. But, you know, there's just a little lesson here. Get it, because they just, you know, got the focus wrong. They said, look, even the devils are subjected through thy name. Actually, he never sent them out to uh, deal with demons, which is quite interesting. Don't know why. Not mentioned in the program. But they came back because they, they were very excited about it all. And you know, the Lord says, look, you're missing the point. The demons and that sort of thing is not the point, he said. I want to tell you something. I want to just tell you something. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. You say, what does that When did that happen? Oh, there's lots of fights about when that happened. <laughs> There is, and uh, they say, well, it must have been when they went out and cast out the demons and preached the gospel, and others say, no, 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 it happened at a previous time. So it goes on. Not interested. I'll just give you the tenses of the word because it really helps you. He says, I beheld Satan as lightning. It's there fallen from heaven. It's actually a past participle, you know? Falling, present participle. All right? Fallen past participle. It's also in a tense which depicts an action which is complete in itself. So he's saying, I saw it happen when there came a time when there was no more place for heaven in heaven for Satan. He's a fallen angel. Alright? Fallen. His place in the blessed hierarchy of the service of God and worship of God, which he had before his fall, is gone. He's not up there anymore. He has no place up there anymore. But can you not get it into your souls, as it were, saying to them, you have got a place up there. He belonged up there through the fall. He came down here for judgment. You belong down here, but through the resurrection in my death, you have a place Right up there in heaven. See the change? Rejoice rather. Your names are written in heaven. You know, I like to think of it like this. I like to think of getting to heaven and you see rows and rows of seats. You know, they build these big churches these days and they think they're fabulous. Can you imagine how many seats there are in heaven? I tell you, if you're a child of God, I want to tell you something. On one of those seats, there's your name. Your name is written in heaven. And it'll go to nobody else. It's yours. The purchase price for the ticket for that seat has been paid in the blood of the Lamb. And instead of being overwhelmed by what? Hostility. Eh? By faith it's under stress and strain. By the impossibility of the task that lies ahead of us. We fix our eyes upon Jesus where he's presently sitting at the right hand of God. 
And we say, it's victory in Jesus, my Saviour forever, who loved me. He bought me on Calvary's tree. That's what you say. And you move on in the light of it. In the week I was reading, <clears throat> I, can't, I wanted to look for it, but I came out and read it to you, but I couldn't find the book and I couldn't even remember where I read it. That's how bad it was. I knew I read four books, five books this week I've been going through and I don't know where it was. Anyway, there's a lovely story about the martyrs. I think actually it was the martyr John Flavel. I think that's who it was. But he was actually 38 and along with others was being burnt at the stake for his faith. I can't quite imagine the horror of that. You talk about suffering and hostility, you know, we're, we, we're babes in the wood. That's what we are. But, you know, as he was there and they lit the fire, he called across to one of his fellow Christians who was suffering on another fire. And he called out, Brother, brother, be of good cheer. Take heart. Ere this night be past, we shall be supping with the Lord around his table. And he died. Like, what can you say? God give us faith like that. Let's pray. Father, these are blessed words of encouragement to us this morning. And we humbly pray that our hearts may have been enriched and blessed. And we may be eager to serve the Master. <clears throat> and to go forth as sheep amongst wolves, but to carry the blessed news of the gospel. And to rejoice every single day in the joy of our own salvation. We give thanks for our time spent together this morning in worship, in remembrance, in thanksgiving, and around thy holy word, which blesses and feeds and guides and cheers. And for the fact that we look above again, and we see him sitting at the right hand of God, and we say, the blessings on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is good that we should be in such a place. So, Father, part us with a blessing, we humbly pray, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our joy and blessing in what lies ahead in his worthy name.